I want to talk today about things related to the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, and really allow ourselves to experience the joy of the Christmas season. And I, you know, I do think it's a little better this year. Um, I remember last year around this time, I mean, we were just like hanging on for dear life mentally and, and spiritually, and a lot of it was just a tough year last year. And so Christmas was such a, we need a breath of fresh air. Um, and so I don't think it's as drastic this year, but I know there's probably still a bit of that lingering just from the craziness of, of where our world is. And so um, I picked a passage today that I, that I hope is an encouragement to you, but maybe in a different way. Uh, I almost exclusively preach in a series. I don't usually spend my weeks wondering what I'm going to preach on Sunday. I don't like to do that. Uh, but this week I did, as we're not doing Mark. And so uh, as you're looking at what to preach for Christmas, obviously you can choose from anything in Matthew and Luke's gospel, those first couple of chapters. That's where all the birth stories are. If you notice, Mark did not have a birth story. John does not really have a birth story. Um, and so, you know, you can look at Mary and Joseph and the angel Gabriel appearing, the virgin birth, the wise men, the shepherds, no room in the inn, the swaddling clothes, you know, all of that story. Uh, and, and every preacher is a little different. You probably have noticed by now that I'm sort of motivated more by the why than the what. And um, so I would like to ask a question as we think about Christmas today. Why did God send a son in the way that he did? The need for this type of question was one that I, I noticed in a survey that was making the rounds uh, this week. Uh, Lifeway Research conducted a, a survey in September of this year, and I pulled a few things from it. The headline of that survey reads as follows, Christmas is a celebration of a real event, according to most Americans. Just don't expect them to know exactly why Jesus was born and came to the earth. Maybe you resonate with that. According to this research, 72% of Americans agree with the historical reality that a person named Jesus really was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. That's three quarters of Americans. So about 75% of our country, when they celebrate Christmas, think it's tied to some real historical event that actually happened. That number, interestingly enough, is higher than the number of Christians in our nation. That's a higher percentage than there are of Christians. So to say Jesus was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago for real is not a controversial statement in this nation. However, a little further down the survey, right, Brother Steve, you always got to go a little further down the survey results. A little further down, they asked some different questions about why Jesus was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago with multiple options given, some correct, some incorrect. Only one answer even broke above 50% for all respondents, and that was at 51%, barely a majority, said Jesus came to give his life for many. But nothing, none of the other answers, whether good or bad, broke 50%. Additionally, 41% of the responses responded with agreement of the statement that Jesus um, did not exist before he was born in Bethlehem. So what does this all mean? It means that the average American believes the basic story of the nativity. They believe it. They think it happened. But they have no idea why it happened. And perhaps that's you sitting here today. Perhaps you could rattle off the gifts that Jesus received from the wise men. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. See, you know it. 
Perhaps you know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of a census declared by Caesar Augustus. And that the reason they had to go to Bethlehem was because who, whose family home was there? Joseph. Okay. You know that Herod, trying to kill Jesus, ordered the slaughter of the infant children under two. You know that there was no room for them in the end. You know that the first people to visit were likely the shepherds. Maybe you even know all the lyrics to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, or Frosty the Snowman, or You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. You know them all. We're very Christmassy, right? We know a lot of these things. But the better question is, do you know what God was saying to the world by sending Jesus? Do you know why Jesus came in the first place? Here's what we're going to look at today. God the Father intended to communicate some very specific truths to the world, specifically through the avenue of the sonship of Jesus Christ. What does God say through Jesus at Christmas? That's what we're looking at today. So if you would, before we read, pray with me. Lord, I pray your hand on this moment. May you be glorified. Lord, as we think on your birth, uh, Lord, cause us to go beyond that it just happened. But Lord, show us insights and, and the depths of what that means for our souls and for our world and for those who are hurting this Christmas. I pray that you would use this text for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews is in the New Testament. It's a beloved book because it can make your heart sore with worship while making your head hurt with confusion at the same time. Great book. Hebrews is the only letter in the New Testament of which we aren't sure of the author, but we do know that it was written to convince a Jewish audience that Christ is supreme. The author of Hebrews systematically works through these Old Testament characters. If you ever read the book, it's like we're working through piece by piece to show Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Better than that. Better than that. It goes through angels and Moses and high priests and Melchizedek and Old Covenant and tabernacle, temple and sacrifices. Jesus is better. Every single one. The entire book of Hebrews could be summarized, however, in its first paragraph. This is the setup for the whole book, which is where we're going to focus at today. This chapter is a classic any time of the year, but I'd ask you as we read it today to think through the lens of Christmas as we do, the coming, the first coming of Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 says this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's what you call a dense paragraph, all right? So that phrase in verse 2 is what grabbed me this week. It says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And that's what really spoke to me. The son spoke something when he was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And guess what? The son still speaks today. 
we see from this text that ultimately it is God who is speaking to you through the avenue, through the instrumentation, the agency of his son. God was communicating something to you when he sent Jesus into that manger stall as a son. So, That's what we're going to look at today. What does God say to the world through Jesus at Christmas? Number one, the Son is an instrument of revelation. If you're taking notes, and I recommend that you do, number one, the Son is an instrument of revelation. Look at verse one again. See, we've got a short passage today, so we can really just, just squeeze each word. All right. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But, maybe you want to circle that, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I'd circle that one too. Verse 1 begins with something that a Jewish reader, a Hebrew, would already affirm. And that is this. And you would affirm, I believe. Our God is a speaking God. Our God is not the God of deism. He's not distant, cold, and uninvolved. No, he is a communicating God who likes to make himself known, who likes to reveal himself, especially to his people whom he loves. The primary action phrase of verse 1 is God spoke. That's the verb, God spoke. But preceding that simple subject verb are three very important modifiers. The first is long ago. It's important to remember this. Every Christmas, we always point to it. That before Jesus, before John the Baptist, there was a significant gap where God had ceased speaking to his people. Between Malachi and John the Baptist was some 400 years of not speaking from God. By definition, to hearken back to the time when God was speaking, we would say long ago. That's a long time. But certainly the author meant not just Malachi. He meant go, go back all the way back, as far back as you can go. God was speaking. He spoke those words to Adam and Eve in the garden. When he said, let there be light, God was speaking. So by definition, long ago in the Bible is a really long time. Another modifier is that many times, at many times, God spoke over a period of time, not just intensely at one time. God spoke those first words. Like we said, let there be light. The universe was made. He spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. He spoke to Noah and told him to build an ark. He spoke to Abraham and said, make a covenant with me. He spoke to Moses, instructing him how to free the people, how to write the law. He spoke to Moses with instructions, to with Joshua with instructions on taking the promised land. He spoke to Samuel to choose King David. He spoke to David as he led Israel as a great king over thousands of years of time. God spoke to his people. Another modifier is in many ways. God spoke at times in an audible voice. He spoke in a burning bush. He spoke through dreams and visions. He spoke through the wind. He spoke through carving Ten Commandments with his finger on rock. He spoke through writing on the wall in the book of Daniel. He spoke through wet and dry fleece in the book of Judges. He spoke through Urim and Thummim, which are those little dice that the priests would throw. He spoke through the mouth of a donkey. That's a good one. He spoke through the temple and through the high priest. You could go on and on through the Bible and make a list, but God spoke in many ways. The end of verse 1 gives, however, the primary way that God spoke through the Old Testament, that God spoke through prophets. Men like Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Daniel, and many others communicated outwardly 
what God had revealed to them in private. Verse 2 begins. Now, we got all that in our back pocket. Everything we just said. Take that. Now, load it in. Verse 2. But in these last days. Now, you know what's getting ready to come. You're setting up. Anytime someone says but to you, especially, uh, you know, your wife, it, it, it completely erases everything that was said before that. You know, uh, great job, but, okay, well, so, but in these last days, God has spoken by his son. The son of God stands, hear this, in equal comparison and even greater than everything we just listed. Allow me to save you some theological time. Jesus is the primary and ultimate revelation of God the Father. In the sending of Jesus into the world, God was continuing his tradition of communicating with his people, but he amped it up beyond anything in the Old Testament. Typically, a prophet would have to go hear from heaven and then bring a word to the people. God sent Jesus from heaven to be a word to the people. Christmas is not just a cute story. It's the sending of the ultimate prophet. Anytime a Muslim says, Muhammad is the final, greatest, and last prophet, I'm sorry, you got to say, uh-uh-uh, no, sir. Jesus is the final, greatest, and last prophet. The Son of God is an instrument of God's revelation to us. Secondly, number two, we see the Son is an instrument of creation. He's an instrument of revelation and now we look at creation. This is something that was a, really a highlight for me of that research, that LifeWay study that I quoted earlier. Only 41% of people responded with agreement to this statement. The Son of God existed before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Think about, would you, would you agree to that? Let's pretend you never heard all this stuff I've been talking about, and I tried to get you in the parking lot before the service. True or false, the Son of God existed before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. In other words, if you disagree, if you say false, you're saying that Jesus did not exist in any form before he was a baby. That that was the first time the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, ever existed. Well, what does the Word say? That's a good question, right? What does the Word say? Look at verse 2 again. It says, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, here it is, through whom he also created the world. Now this is a big, bold statement by the author. Not only is Jesus the prototypical firstborn, meaning he is the heir of all of God's vast domain, but the argument is made that God created the world through Jesus. That's what it says, right? Through whom he created the world. God created the world through Jesus. Now, you might have to go eat lunch and think about that one. Now, I'm a simple man, I agree, but if the Bible says Jesus was an active participant in the creation of the world, doesn't that mean that he existed before Bethlehem? I mean, the creation of the world was before Bethlehem, right? Not only that, he existed before Adam. He existed before light. He existed before matter itself. Through Jesus, all things were made. 
And John 1, 3 says, there wasn't anything that was made that was made apart from him. Everything was made through him. So not only is Jesus the Son of God because he is born by a miracle of the Holy Spirit in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary, but he's the eternal Son of God who existed infinitely into the past alongside God the Father. So when you read the Christmas story and you hear that Jesus was born in a manger, don't think that he just began to exist in that moment. No. This is why Christians use a word called incarnation. Now, if you really want to get a laugh, add instant breakfast after that, and you'll confuse a lot of people. But I don't, you know, but some do. The incarnation. This is a really important word. It's the word for the divine becoming human. It's the melding of the divine nature with the human nature. It's the taking on of human flesh. When we say God became flesh at Christmas time, we mean Jesus existed as spirit before. He was there. He existed. And then he came down and took on flesh, incarnated, took on a human body and a human name, Jesus, and received an earthly mother to accompany his already existing heavenly father. This is why Christmas is such a big deal. You see, in the Old Testament, God would show up from time to time. We call those, anybody got $3 seminary word? Theophanies. When God would show up in the Old Testament in some tangible representation, you could say perhaps the burning bush was like that. Moments where God makes himself visible for a moment, but it never lasts really that long. He's there, he does the purpose for, what, for whence he came, and then he's gone. Back to his normal state, which is spirit. God is spirit. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was spirit, then came down and took on flesh for 30 plus years and hung out and got to know people. I mean, that's wild to think about. He lived a full life, had family that he knew, friends. That is extremely rare in Bible standards that Jesus did that. The Son is an instrument of revelation. He is an instrument of creation. Next, number three, we see the Son is an instrument of Clarification. Clarification. So if you'll look back at verse 3 with me, love this verse. It says, He, that is Jesus, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Commentator David Allen writes of this verse, Every word pulsates with deity. I like that. This is very important to how we see Jesus in the manger. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. That word radiance, it's like an emanating reflection of intense brightness. It's like, the, it's like you got the sun, the ball, and then you've got all those rays that emanate and radiate off of the sun. Jesus radiates the glory of the Father. If Jesus being called the Logos illustrates the divine logic of God. Then Jesus being called radiance illustrates the divine glory of God. He takes the glory of God and intensifies and clarifies and communicates it even more powerfully to us. Verse 3 also says, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Now here's one Greek word you can memorize. You know what the Greek word is for behind exact imprint? Character. 
That's it. That's the Greek. You already know it. See, it literally means the stamp or representation. It's how Jesus can say in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Colossians 1.15 says it this way. He is the image of the invisible God. You see, you and I were made in the image of God. You, you knew that, right? You and every other person is made in the image of God. However, you and I bear marks of sin and rebellion and fallenness. And though we're still image bearers, we're not exact image bearers. It's kind of like if you have an iPhone with a cracked screen. Anybody ever had that where someone just steps on your phone or maybe the car tire runs over it or something? You just drop it perfectly on the corner. You didn't buy the OtterBox and everyone told you you should have. You didn't get the insurance plan. You drop it on the corner, boom, and then that crack just runs through the whole screen and now there's that black piece and you really can't see the screen anymore. We still communicate truths about God, you and I do, just like that broken screen. But it's not perfect. It's not like you can exactly know. You can't exactly know who God is by looking at me, right? We still communicate truths about God that animals and rocks and plants don't. Don't, don't get that messed up. We're the best there is. We still possess a remnant of human conscience. However, we are broken because of sin. Jesus is not an image bearer like we are. He is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God the Father. He perfectly represents God to this world. Jesus is a 6K video of God on an IMAX screen. You and I are 144p video recorded on your flip phone from 2005, okay? Both communicate something. However, Jesus clarifies God. He makes him more clear, whereas you and I might make him less clear by our actions. The more and more you study Jesus and listen to him and talk to him, the more and more you understand who God is. That's called clarity. The more you know him, the more you know him. People let you down. Sinners will let you down. Hear this. You're, if you spend your whole life looking at somebody, some person, you're going to find that at some point in their life, even at their best, they are imperfectly imaging God. They're not going to get it right 100% of the time. Only Jesus will get you closer to the exact imprint of the nature of God. And that's why we look to him and no person. You've heard a son called a chip off the old block, a spitting image of his father. Jesus was that and more. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The Son is an instrument of revelation, of creation, of clarification. And next, number four, the Son is an instrument of purification. Can't miss this one. As we think about why Jesus came to the earth in that Bethlehem stall, certainly we don't want to miss this. Look at verse three. It says, He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making, here it is, purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now this Greek word behind purification is katharismos. A Hebrew would have understood that word instantly. Jesus made purification. In other words, he made cleanness. He provided cleanness for sins. What this little phrase is alluding to is the coming crucifixion of Christ. 
Hebrews 9 and 10, if you're looking for a good read today, Hebrews 9 and 10 would go into great detail about how the blood of Christ surpasses that of the efficacy of rams and bulls and goats, that the shedding of his blood on the cross is the once and for all final sacrifice, the ending atonement, the completion of the Jewish sacrificial system. Jesus came to purify us from our sin. Now, if you don't believe me, I got a great verse for you to tattoo on your Christmas forehead. Here it is. In Matthew 1:21, the angel Gabriel spoke these words to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, comma, for he will save his people from their sins. Imagine making a birth announcement for your child and, and including their profession in it. That's what just happened there. Imagine John Doe has been born, and he will be a welder. John shall, baby John shall be a welder. And then 30 years later, he is a welder. And then 2,000 years later, you can't find a survey where everyone agrees that he was a welder. How about that? That's what it's like when Christians act like we don't know what Jesus came to this earth to do. It's in the birth announcement. We know what Jesus came to this earth to do. He would save his people from their sins. The name Jesus literally means, in Hebrew, Yeshua, Yahweh saves And then he grew up and died on a cross to save people from their sin. And then 2,000 years later, Christians are debating what he came to the earth to do. Jesus came to purify you from your sins. That's what Christmas is, the arrival of the one who can do that. It's the celebration of the showing up of the Messiah, the Savior, the Purifier, the Forgiver-in-Chief, the Grace-Giver, the Mercy-Extender, the Atonement Provider, the one who actually has ability to make purification by offering his own body as an acceptable sacrifice to the Father. That's where Christmas is headed. The Son is an instrument of revelation, of creation, of clarification, of purification. Lastly, number five, of exaltation. He's an instrument of exaltation. Look at the middle of verse 3 and work through 4 with me. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. These verses tell us the trajectory of where this is all going, where Christmas goes. Not only do people forget at Christmas time that Jesus was born to die on a cross, we forget that. It's equally forgotten that Jesus was born to reign in a kingdom. This is why the humble imagery of Jesus being born is so powerful. That's why that Hosanna moment, you know, running through on the little donkey, that's so powerful. That's why the, the manger, no room in the end, the swaddling clothes, being, the shepherds being the first to see him. That's why it's so powerful, because it's contrasted against the reality that Jesus would one day ascend to heaven and take the seat of power at the right hand of the Father, where Psalm 110 says he will reign until his enemies are made his footstool. So not only does Hebrews 1 teach Jesus existed fully God before his incarnation, but it also teaches that he reigns as fully God after his resurrection. Again, this is why Christmas is a big deal, because it is the kickoff to the timeline. All of history is sitting there waiting, and it's like there's that one domino. You know those massive sets of dominoes you see where they set them off, and and it goes for like 30 minutes, and it's going up and down, and mousetraps are going off and stuff. It's just an amazing thing. 
It's kind of like all of history is this big set of dominoes laid out, and we're just sitting there. Here's the first domino, and we're just sitting there looking at it, waiting on, is someone going to push the, the first domino? That's what Christmas is. It's the pushing of the first domino that begins a timeline of redemption that sees us all the way through to the millennial, earthly, heavenly kingdom where Christ reigns here on the earth. It's an amazing thing. Even though God would send his son Jesus into a world of sin, he would experience death and betrayal. On the other side of that life, on the other side of that death and betrayal was exaltation and praise and glory for all eternity. Jesus, yes, experienced a lot of pain the first go-around, but he will not the second time. And this is the beginning of the argumentation for the author of Hebrews. If you were to keep preaching through Hebrews, he gets right into argument number one. Jesus is better than angels. He's ready. He's ready to move now. He set it up. Verse four, he begins all of these things, superior to the angels. Then it says this, as the name, now I had, this is why I want to include this today, because I like it. He's superior to the angels because the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. What name is that? Is it Jesus? Is it Christ? Is it Messiah? Well, those are all true. But if you read the next verse, it tells you the name that no other angel ever can lay claim to is Son. Son. With the title of God's only Son comes immense power and authority. And that's why verse 5 says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son? Today I have begotten you. Or I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The answer, never. No angel, not Michael, not Gabriel. No one has ever been called son. But Jesus forever owns the title of God's only begotten son. There are just some things that God intended to communicate to the world by sending a son. And that's what's happening behind the scenes when we celebrate Christmas. The revealing of God's character and will, the eternal nature of the Son, clarifying the image of God through the Son, the purification of sins by the sinless Son, and the exaltation to the Father's right hand where the Son sits right now. He's there. Certainly, we love the facts of the nativity. I do. You should. But we also should be asking, what is God saying to the world through the Son. What does the Son speak to us about the Father? How can we know God through Jesus? What gift did we really receive in the incarnation of Christ? You know, God is an intentional, purposeful God. Everything he does speaks something. How much would the birth of his only begotten Son speak to the world 2,000 years ago, and how much more does it still speak to us even today? Pray with me.